Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. As ethnographers, Adam and I are ethnographers, we are used to the idea that big discoveries can come from everyday observations. We are trained to look in the world around us and see things. And there are possibilities for discovery in everyday life. All it takes is for us to notice. And noticing can be the hardest thing to teach people who aren't used to noticing. An observation becomes a noticing, which then becomes a premise, which turns into an idea. And eventually, that can even become a paradigm. Or, in the case of our guest today, a noticing can turn into a book. And our guest today made initial noticings from all the time he spent in airports. And it was a simple observation at the baggage claim, and who hasn't spent time at the baggage claim, that led to his book, Step Back from the Baggage Claim, Change the World, Start at the Airport. The premise of the book is simple but important, and it's how to change our daily world through thoughtful and compassionate action. Or, put in other words, the biggest changes can start with the smallest acts of compassion, kindness, and service, and all it takes is noticing where those opportunities exist. Yeah, I like that. So today on Experience by Design, we're excited to introduce you all, or to reintroduce you, if you already know him, to Jason Barger. And he is the author of the new book, Breathing Oxygen, How Positive Leadership Gives Life to Winning Cultures. Now, In it, Jason takes his experience of working with some of the biggest brands and combines these lessons, these ideas, with everything that he's learned from a life spent in service to others. In this episode, we talk about how today's generation needs fulfillment through their work and to be part of something that's larger than themselves. Again, remember that idea of noticing. We also explore how things like busyness is not the same as effectiveness and how more time to reflect and think can pay dividends when it comes to deciding and doing. Again, maybe we should all spend a little bit more time at the baggage claim in the airport. Thinking. Thinking. Yes, thinking. Not getting your baggage. Thinking about where my uh, luggage is. Yes, exactly. Reflecting on where my luggage went. Um, we also discuss things like how it's better to be a thermostat than a thermometer. I bet you'd never thought about that before. The idea here is that it's it's better to be setting culture rather than just measuring it. And finally, we examine how the language of leadership factors into breathing oxygen into workplace culture. And how ideas like breathing purpose into ourselves can also breathe that oxygen into others. And most importantly of all, Gary also learns that good things can, in fact, come out of Columbus, Ohio, mm. although it remains to be seen if he is actually convinced. I'm not convinced, but it was a great conversation. It was nice to humanize people from Ohio, myself being from Michigan, <laughs> and to learn people from Columbus have contributions they can make as well. So hope you enjoyed the podcast. Cool. All right. So we got record. Uh, as I was looking at your your past, Jason, I was very conflicted about whether to <laughs> like you or not, because I saw you went to Denison and I was doing a little research on this. 
And Steve Carell went to Denison and Steve Carell, actually quick story, Steve Carell's brother used to cut my lawn. No way. Yes. Look at that. Cause Steve, small world. Steve Carell is yeah. in the town from the town next to where I live. He's from Acton, Mass. And okay. so he's a local guy. So I'm like, okay, Jason's cool. He went to college where Woody or where um, Steve Carell went. But then you also went to college where Woody Hayes went. <laughs> and that's where we ran into difficulty because I'm from Michigan. Originally. This is, yeah, this is where we've got challenges here, buddy. <laughs> this is where we got challenges because I'm like, oh, he went to college, to the same school as Woody Hayes. And I just that's a lot for me to get over, to tell you the truth. All right. So let me let me clarify. So I went to Denison. You're right. You are correct. I went to right. Denison. Uh, after Denison, I, I did a program at Georgetown. Uh, I live in Columbus, Ohio, and was born in Columbus, Ohio. I didn't go to Ohio State, but I, right. I was born uh, in the shadow of the horseshoe where Woody Hayes and many others have. So when you are born there, you are indoctrinated into Buckeye culture. And uh, I've got season tickets. Uh, we are yeah. crazy fans. So this is where we are challenged. Yeah. And I'm, and I'll just apologize. I know Michigan, uh, you know, somehow got us last year, but right. I just apologize. I'm beating up on you for right. you know, Here we the go. better part of the last decade or so. Here I'm sorry. <laughs> and that's, and that's the funny thing about like, you know, this, I didn't even go to university of Michigan uh, that they wouldn't yeah, let right. me in, yeah. but you grow up in Southeastern Michigan, you grow up in, you know, the Woody Hayes, Bo Schembechler, oh, no doubt. You know, you kind of get indoctrinated into these larger biases, which, you know, as I often say to people, the thing you need to know about Ohio is they had to build amusement parks to try to convince people to visit there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so there is that, you know, Cedar yeah. Point's really nice and SeaWorld and Kings Island and all that fun stuff. But, you know, we couldn't get people to come here on its own. So let's just build a bunch of stuff and maybe they'll come. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, was it, is it Tim Allen that Michigan had to go get recruit to do the whole pure Michigan, you know, ads that are beautiful, by the way, the after, come, after my time, I come, <laughs> come experience pure Michigan. Did you, you know, know I mean, it is, is isn't that Tim Allen and that who they got the voice it's to do the problems from there? I mean, it's, it's, yeah. a weird, it's a weird Michigan lineage between Tim Allen and Bob Seeger and uh, Ted Nugent <laughs> and the MC five. I mean, there's a lot going on in Motown. So, yeah. it, it, but it does get into like, you know, I, I just think about this notion of, you know, how the legacies of the early parts of our past and how we're raised impact our present and what wait, wait for this segue and how that relates to organizations. There, Ooh, look at this. Whoa. I Whoa. know, just like smoothly and seamlessly <laughs> moved in this other area. Didn't see that coming. I, I well, rarely do. This is why the this is where magic happens. But you know, it's it's funny that we I I didn't go to Michigan. You didn't go to Ohio State. But nevertheless, we feel this identi identification with yeah. these larger organizations that somehow define ourselves, our lives, and our relationships. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt, the, the environment that we grow up around, the things that we end up spending our time and our energy on, they, they certainly make an impact on how we enter the world and see the world, no doubt. So one of the things that, that is, I think, a fun part of your bio that folks are coming to get to know you a little bit, that um, you, know, you kind of have this, this tagline, I guess, that, that you 
kind of traded off a lot of staying in one place to kind of sleeping in airports and observing human behavior. And yeah. so this is, seems like one of the most interesting spots to to think about that. Cause like thinking of where, where we come from and how that shapes who we are, airports are these interesting transient spaces, right? Where we see people at their perhaps best and worst. <laughs> no doubt. Um, you know, so I, I'd love to, I'd love to kind of jump into this a little bit too, and kind of get a sense of, of like, how did, how is the, the, you know, what inspired you about airports in terms of a place of seeing human behavior and what, what, what did this kick off for you in terms of your, your next kind of pathway? Yeah. 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 No, thanks for the question. Uh, what Adam's referencing is the very first book that I wrote uh, back in 2008, believe it or not. Uh, it was called Step Back from the Baggage Claim, Change the World, Start at the Airport. And I, I similar to what you just described, I, I always thought airports were fascinating. I loved uh, the adventures that I was lucky to get to go on as kid, as a kid. And then also uh, really the time right before I wrote the book at a time when I was uh, lucky to be leading and taking uh, really what ended up to be over over a course of years, thousands of people to go internationally to build houses for people literally living in, in the dirt. And so it became this very uh, interesting space, the airports that is, of watching people that everybody is transient, going different directions with different agendas. Everybody's trying to get somewhere else. And yet our lives collide right in this hectic space where there are so many obstacles, delays, cancellations. And yet how we handle that and how we, what I talk about is kind of traveling gracefully and watching what, how do we approach uh, not just, you know, we've all talked about not just the destination, but the journey, but then what difference does that make on the people around us? And so step back from the baggage claim is, is, is about this. How do we move throughout the world? Not just not it's using air travel as a metaphor, but not literally just in the airports, but for, for our lives. And then where people naturally began to take it is for their organizations, for their teams. How do we move throughout, uh, you know, around the, the the metaphorical baggage claims of our lives? What is it we're trying to claim? Do we step back to see things from different perspective? And ultimately, then, how are we committed to moving together? And that metaphor just became really uh, rich to me, um, and unfortunately, resonated with a whole lot of people. So that was that was. Uh, kind of took this off on a different direction. I'm kind of curious about your process. You know, it's just, it's the fact that you noticed this thing and then it turned into a book. So what was that journey? Like, I guess I'm asking, cause I'm, you know, I struggle with something similar. It's how do you turn a noticing into, well, there's something there. That's an idea. That's a kernel of an idea. And then I'm going to expand it out into a larger book that draw, you know, creates, makes a larger point than just, you know, the baggage claim. Yeah, I, I, I'm a strange guy. One, that's the, that's the, the first point I'll make because I'm, I'm, I'm a strange, weird guy. So I, I see you giving thumbs up. So I think you appreciate it, and and, and you are probably strange yourselves. Um, actually, I was just having a a, a drink with somebody uh, last night uh, that is in the process of writing their first book, and was asking very similar questions. I, I, my fourth book is actually coming out this August, and so we're talking about the process of that and. Everybody uh, that I've ever talked to that's written or uh, and published things is uh, everybody has their own process, of course. For me, and the way that I would answer that, Gary, is that for me, I have these ideas that just marinate and marinate and marinate, and I continue to kind of take notes, uh, make little reminders to myself. I I pull little stories and things that I think come into that idea, and I can't really explain why 
and, and when, but all of a sudden I have this feeling in my gut when I just know it, there's something more there that kind of needs to come out. And, and I know that isn't maybe the most tactically helpful uh, advice or things <laughs> that, that I'm describing, uh, because for me, I just, it, it marinades and the idea, and I think I'm always thinking about it in the background. And then all of a sudden, I have this moment in my gut that says, it's time to try to bring this to life. And that was the case with the first book. I had no idea what I was doing. I had, I had this concept around a baggage claim and a metaphor of air travel and this, these things that I had reflected on for years, but I had no idea whether or not I could artfully tell, craft the story and tell a compelling story that would connect a metaphor uh, to obviously mean something for our lives, for our teams, for our businesses. And so then I think it's a matter of once you have that nudging, or at least for me, this kind of, you have to create it, then it's a matter of diving into the craft. And you, and, and for me, I just have to go away. I have to get it, go to, I, I typically binge write. I go off for a few days to a cabin or something. Hmm. And for that first, first book, I literally wrote 80% of it during the week that I was living in airports I, because hmm. I was there, I, I was consumed by it. And I just have to, to kind of dive into the craft of storytelling. Yeah, I wonder, I teach a course on employee experience. I'm teaching it this summer. And one of the things that we often talk about in this course is the increasing extent to which people feel unfulfilled in their professions, in part because of the fact that they can't let these things that are in them come out. And mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, you talk about culture and Adam's an anthropologist, I'm a sociologist. So we study culture and society. Is this a new thing with like, you know, um, maybe Gen X, you know, millennials, Gen Z, where it's like, I need more fulfillment than just a paycheck, whereas earlier generations felt may have felt okay with I come to work, I do my job, I leave and I find fulfillment outside of work, whereas generations today need to find it through work and the workplace is necessarily set up to provide that. Yeah, I, I think uh, generationally we we are evolving in, in that. And these are just my observations, right? And, and, and you guys certainly know the, the research and data around it that would that would probably support this idea. But I think you know we think about our parents' generations or even our grandparents' generation. Uh, the the uh, you know they 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 were into a role where the the culture around them was you enter a job and you put your head down and you grind for 30 or 40 years and and that's just what you do right and as we got into then gen you know gen x uh you know i think people started to to try to follow in those footsteps but then also began to see that, hey, maybe there was a little bit of a movement, an ability to jump around to a couple of different jobs. Now, obviously, with Gen Z, millennials, like uh, people that are uh, younger folks, now it is much more common, of course, and I believe that are asking uh, some good questions. And I think purpose and, and fulfillment has always been something that's been important to people throughout that that through line of the generations but i think now it's becoming more it's become more normalized to be able to ask those questions and say that maybe i want something greater for my life and for my uh, my contribution to my work to my skill set to my whatever that i can bring and so 
uh, a lot of the questions that they're asking are really fundamentally good questions. And obviously, and you guys, I'm sure, are familiar with all the the, the research and data around that people are, are, are looking for more meaningful work cultures. They, they want to be a part of something where that's bigger than themselves. They want to feel like they belong. They want to feel like they are um, valued, that they get to contribute. They're not just a, a number or a name that they actually have a say and that they also know that they are being developed and their skill set is valued. In ways, and so this uh, this now isn't just an add-on. This is what people want, need, and and so we, I think we've always known that in our gut, maybe from the employee experience side of things. And I think where a lot of the evolution is now starting to go is now employers are starting to become more aware that hey, we better marry this. Or else, what we're experiencing with the Great Resignation and other things is going to continue to happen because people, if they don't feel a connection to this meaningful culture, then they'll just simply go somewhere else. Yeah, and especially that—that that seems that the Great Resignation is a really good example of that. I think that you know, folks have have be have you know felt more empowered to take it upon themselves to rethink. Yeah, what is the purpose of my work, and do I feel valued? Right? Do I feel like I'm I'm part of a community, or a, a, do I feel like I belong? And if I don't, then I'm, I'm more willing to kind of make that that reassess and make that change. You know, it's interesting that like sometimes it can take something like a pandemic, right, to make people kind of wake up a little bit. Or I think I think you're 100 right though, Jason, that we know it in our gut, but there's not necessarily the the social structure, right, or the certainly the workplace structure that we're allowed to then say, well, uh, I you know I might think my boss is a jerk, but like I but like it may not be that extreme. It could be just more like I don't really get on with my colleagues, right? I don't feel like I actually have a decision. You know, I don't get to make decisions that actually impact me, right? The things that kind of get handed down to me. And so it's interesting to see these kinds of questions that, that employees and now employers are, are having to kind of ask and pay attention to. Um, I'm curious. I, to think, I think about that, this. hold like, on. Yeah. Let me, let yeah, me jump in just for one second, because I think, I think what you're saying, Adam, is, is, is really an important point is also, I think, the culture that over the years that we have evolved into also is what I refer to as that we honor busyness rather than effectiveness. And so we oftentimes in our own personal lives, but also within teams and throughout organizations, is we've honored this kind of multitasking, quickness, just always running. And we've got so much stuff going on. And again, if you want to equate it back to that frenzy around the baggage claim, is that a lot of, even if we know something in our gut, oftentimes we don't, we're so rushed and so hurried that we don't actually stop and take the time to say, what would we do differently? And so allowing ourselves then to, to kind of step back, which I think the pandemic and other things that we've been experiencing over the last two years have really allowed us in some ways to step back. And then I think some of those gut feelings now, once we've stopped the, the hurried rush, have emerged to then say, okay, what is it we really want? And proactively, what is the culture that I want for my own life that I want to be a part of? And then again, I think teams and leaders and organizations are now asking that question even more so is, man, what is that proactive culture that we are creating so that we can be a place that can retain the great people we already have, attract the people that may want to be a part of this, and then develop the talent that we already have. Yeah, I think that that's right on, and that's a really that's a really great point. 
and it's interesting to see the the like growing connection between these two, right? There's the kind of the we might say employee side and employer side, right? And, and that on one level, it's interesting because we are all humans, right? Some of us may employ, some of us may be employed, um, but we still share the same kind of fundamental questions of like, do I want purpose in my work, right? And it's interesting because you tend to see. Um, you know, C-suite and leaders talk about like mission and purpose, right? And like that, this is what our organization is about. But the question is like, how far does that quote unquote trickle down to every employee, right? And so that's yep. an interesting, that middle ground is I think where we're seeing this, this kind of conversation play out uh, more and more today. Yeah, no doubt. And and what I'm uh, seeing, and then certainly the, the the companies and the organizations that I'm lucky to support in this way is helping that, uh, as you articulated, that it often starts at that C-suite level of people talking about mission and purpose and, and and about the values of the company or or again my language that I talk about in my book thermostat cultures is is what is that temperature that we're trying to set um, but the best companies and again the ones that I've been lucky to help with this is when the c-suite realizes that it can't just be a top-down mandate that we have to proactively part of shaping culture is it isn't just a you know, being dictated from quote unquote above, but that we begin to involve and really uh, elicit participation from frontline folks, from middle management folks, from throughout the organization in a participatory process that really helps people have a voice and engage in what is the culture that you want? What is it we want? And isn't just a uh, C-suite, hey, this is the culture we're going to have, but it is a it is a participatory, what I talk about is conversations that are the currency for change. And, and, and then together we can, as we better articulate that future culture we're all committed to creating, then at the different roles and 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 you know places in the organization, then we can begin to get very strategic about how we implement that culture in the way that we not just talk about it, but we link it to action and behavior. I'm glad to hear you say middle management. I was thinking about another metaphor. If if leadership is a thermostat, then middle management is the insulation or the, you know, the pink fiber stuff that if you get on your skin, it's really itchy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I often hear about top down or bottom up, but I seldom hear about middle out. It's what I call middle out. And that yeah, yep. So much of what happens at middle management is, you know, these unfunded mandates, so to speak, or under-resourced mandates where we have all these great ideas. And here's another thing you need to do on top of the other things you need to do. Now go do it. And middle management might totally embrace whatever it is that is being, you know, said or recommended or instructed, but it becomes another thing in the list of other things that aren't taken away and aren't supported. And I even think about, you know, I do work in DEI and, you know, it, no one has training in how to do this. Yep. It's just yep. there. And why are we doing it? Because someone said it needs to be done. And mm. and and how do I do it? Figure it out. And now that and then that breeds resentment and anxiety because now you have another thing you need to do without knowing what it is you're doing or why it is you're doing it. Yeah, no, Gary, that's a great point because and that's that is the ethic that I think happens in many different organizations and and it's I you know, I choose to believe it comes from a good place. It's like, hey, we need a DEI initiative or we need a, you know, a culture shaping, you know, proactive process that we want to initiate. And it comes from a spirit of of, of I think I I choose to believe a good place. Uh but but oftentimes uh where it uh, you know, 
uh, again, get maybe stalls or, or doesn't have the impact that it might have is that is that the person being asked to lead it maybe doesn't have any experience doing that and or isn't sure just will will you know hey uh, go shape the culture and like okay I, I love that idea but but what is it that I should do maybe they aren't equipped to do that what I'm what I'm at least seeing and I think where there's a, a great deal of um, I think we should feel good about progress that's being made is I, I see more and more organizations and more and more leaders, and even at that middle management level that are realizing that we need to, to have support and that this can't just be an extra add-on on top of everything else that you do. Hey, here's this initiative that you need to go do that they're really seeing that, hey, culture is everything. It is the air that we breathe. And so it's not an extra thing we do when we have time to work on it or an extra program that we're going to now ask you to go do. We all have to be invested in the in the creation of that, and then seeking support and and tools and outside folks to help guide and lead and, and partner with them to do that. I, I see a greater understanding of that than I think some of that older thinking that I, I hear you describing. Now that absolutely still exists, certainly in many places, but I, I see that I think it's I think it's getting better in that way. Anyway, I, I, one of the things that's interesting to me is, you know, two people, you know, Adam and I, who come from professions who for over a hundred years have been saying culture is everything. Yeah. yeah Finally right. seeing organizations go, you know what? Culture is everything. That's and right. We're going, that's right. And I, I do wonder, is it a failing on our part as social scientists for not communicating adequately? Partly for sure. Or, and to what extent? Is it a failure on organization or leadership for not recognizing what anybody in an anthro or social 100 class would learn maybe on the first day? Yeah, man. I mean, that's that's above my pay grade, buddy, to know exactly what the answer to that uh, question is. But I think you're probably, I think it's, um, uh, no, I don't think it's your fault. Uh, and, I, th- I, I think, think partially, I think actually uh, partially uh, is our fault. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I think there's there's always like could we articulate things better differently like somehow the language or the the way we describe things you know I I think about uh, not to take us off on a tangent but how, how much uh, and, and you guys know this in culture shaping that I talk about language drives behavior and so we have to be able to articulate things and describe what it is we're trying to create or else things get lost in translation and the the image that I remember if you remember when all the um, talk, talk about uh, you know global warming and climate change began. Uh, you know, really, what like people could point to it. No matter what you think about it, like people could 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 talk could begin to talk about it. But we fumbled for many years through the language and got caught up in the language of it. Uh, you know, we started talking about the greenhouse effect, and people weren't sure like what that really meant. And if you weren't avid, you know, uh, an avid greenhouse person, then you, then why would you understand what that means in terms of the environment? Then we started to go to global warming and eventually we got to climate change and, and, and what the, the, the language has started, the precision to the language has gotten better, which has then been, uh, we're still have a long way to go of people even wrapping their heads around it, but the language helps get us there. So I, I do think there's probably uh, to your point that there's an art, you know, have we articulated well enough for the years? And then I also think there's just an evolution of thinking and, and a um, 
things in the world around us happen, like pandemics and things we've just experienced, these intense issues of social justice and systemic racism, this political and economic uncertainty. Where are my kids going to school? Are we remote or are we, uh, you know, uh, are, are workers hybrid, remote, in person, all this stuff that's been changing? And I think then it's now it's revealed itself that, oh my gosh, this is as important as ever. And now it's way easier to say and to realize that culture is everything. Uh, uh, my, my, my language for global warming was just uh, death weather. I was hoping that would catch on. There's going to be an outbreak of it's death weather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and, and we still have all these examples around us of things that are happening. And again, I'm no scientist. I I, I don't know. I, I can't articulate all that well. But I use that again just as an example of it. It takes language to help us describe it to somebody else, so that we can even be talking about the same thing. Mm-hmm. And 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 figuring out what that that shared language even is, I think is is you know one of the interesting challenges that that we have uh, because it's it's a bit about you know what vocabulary do we use, but also things like how do we address one another, right? Like how do we think about the power between between individuals and different relationships, and who has the the I mean you mentioned before in terms of like some of the consulting work that you do is helping organizations and different folks at different probably different levels. Uh, have voices and like, you know, or the flip side, I think about is how to be heard by others too, right? Because sometimes right. they may not be trained to listen. Um, so I think that's like one of the really interesting challenges. I'd love to, I'd love to kind of dive into that. Um, maybe some examples of things, if you can share of things that you've kind of worked with about this, like how do we, how do we get folks to rethink language? And then what, what how are we talking about what change means? How are we talking about culture in an organization uh, that gets people to pause and say, oh yeah, we actually do need to rethink um, what it means to, to have culture and to promote it. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, it's a it's a great question, and I'll, I'll give you one example. So, oftentimes when when a company asks and says, "Hey, Jason, we want you to help help us uh, change the culture or or be a part of a, a culture changing initiative of, of some sort," oftentimes the very first thing I say back to them is, "Well, the culture is already changing." You know, so it's it's not a matter of will it change it. It is. It's because because culture is dynamic, so it's changing moment by moment every day. And said, but it, so the question isn't, is it changing? The question is, what role do you and I and everyone in the organization, what role do we want to play and what we want it to become? And are we going to be strategic and intentional and proactive about shaping it? And so oftentimes in those kind of scenarios, I love the, the example I give is I'll walk in then as I'm, I'm meeting folks and learning about their company and I'll, and I'll say, well, tell me about your values. Tell me about the, the the core values of this company. What 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 do you think is rooted in this? And in, in not just what you do, no matter what industry you're in or what it is that you you do, but but how you're committed to showing up and 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 collaborating, working together. What's what's that? What are, what's that value system? And oftentimes, you know, they point up on the wall, and they've got a big integrity or you know a word like that up on the wall. And I and they say, you know, one of their values is integrity. And I said, oh well, that's that's great. Uh, tell me what it looks like in action and behavior to work with integrity here, no matter what role you might be in. And they oftentimes fumble over, uh, blah, 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 blah. you know, it, it means integrity. Like we all know what integrity, well, we don't know what, we all don't know what integrity means. And so even a word like that, that is used so frequently 
and a word like culture, which I think is a really important thing that how we define that and talking about it. So integrity, then we have to be able to, to really deconstruct and define what is it we mean by integrity. And then to your point is we need to bring people into participation. And so part of the processes that, that I've led with many, many companies and organizations of, of involving cross-functional people, so at different levels throughout the organization, to come together and talk about this desired culture that they hope to have of not just what they do and how do they do it. And then diving into the language of, and so that we are all participating, we're all listening to each other, and we're all, we all have an opportunity to try to articulate it. And then through uh, over time of, of, of talking about it, we can get more clear on let's, so if it is a word like integrity that we end up with is you know, how do we, def- what does that look like in action and behavior? Whether I'm the C-suite person, I'm the person that sweeps the floor, I'm the, you know, front desk person, I'm the salesperson, I'm the, like, how can we then, uh, and I often talk about that values are, are a tool, they're not a poster, you know, that, that we need to make sure that, yes, we have great posters, but the more important thing is, are our posters in our people? And so we have to, to, to recognize that language is the tool to help us communicate and connect it, and language helps drive the behavior that we're committed to. And, and the interesting flip side there too, that if language is the great connector and driver of change, but then it can also be a stumbling block if we don't. If we, I think integrity is a great example, right? We're like I don't really know what that means, or what it looks yeah, like. Absolutely. Um, you know, so I can't, I can't move forward with that, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's, that's actually, Adam, that's a, that's a great, uh, that's one of the, the things I talk about is l- language helps drive behavior. And it's so critical. And I talk about precision of the language. And yet at the same time, we also have to recognize that language is imperfect. And so we, we are always, uh, we're always kind of, um, rinsing and repeating and trying to, to narrow in and, and, and find the right language that's going to help us. And it also makes me think about in terms of the values and, you know, the inaction. And I really appreciate that because, you know, I, when we talk about culture, when I teach classes on culture, it's often people, a lot of literature will situate around concepts. You know, Americans believe in individualism. Well, what does that mean? You yeah, know, right. if I see everyone standing up for the national anthem, doesn't look like a bunch of, well, one person's kneeling, everyone yelling at that one person kneeling, you know, no one's saying, wow, he's a great individual. Mm. They're saying he's not doing it like the rest of us. <laughs> mm. So there's all kinds of elements of, you know, collectivity or collectivism or social pressure. But one of the things that makes me wonder about regarding integrity is this idea of profitability versus values versus service orientation. I was watching CSNBC or CNBC the other day, and they were asking whether or not like uh, ethics and social responsibility is profitable. I mean, is that the right question to be asking here? (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying you want it to be unprofitable, but if it's less profitable in terms of a bottom line, than being, you know, not ethical. Shouldn't we just be good with that? I mean, you know, <laughs> there's this notion of we, you know, do we equate DEI with increased profitability? Do we increase a service orientation with increased profitability? And how do you get or get at this larger notion of a, a shareholder orientation 
of you know maximizing return and profitability versus a stakeholder orientation around how do we do how do we service the larger good for all of those who are involved yeah this is a really great question um and i think this really goes into that space that i was just describing of where i think we are as i still still think we are in this time of evolution between generations and evolving in our thinking around again if culture is everything then again it's a part of uh like profit profitability is one element of this and and it's not the only thing and then everything else is it is extra and i think we're still evolving into that that space but when i when i first uh started talking about this these concepts of culture and and started um you know supporting places and and speaking about it a lot and writing about it a lot uh one of the things i found really quickly was that people there there's a certain uh subset of people that really need to the, see that they still their thinking is that you know, this is an add-on, an extra thing. And so the first thing is profitability. And then if we're profitable, then we can think about all this other stuff rather than thinking that there actually is a, re there's an ROI, there's a return on the investment of just doing good, what I would refer to as doing good business. And, and, and part of that is how we uh, collaborate together and the environment and the culture that we create for people to be in meaningful work environments actually elevates their their uh, performance and actually then leads to greater profitability. And what I realized is that some people still need kind of that case. They need the business case, if you will, for why do these things. And so you're the DEI or whatever example you just referenced is like, um, I, you know, I think we're going to we're going to get to a point where we realize that yes, that's just a part of the whole picture of our business, and not just profitability as the single only important thing. And yet, what we've had to get better at, and what I've had to get get better at, is helping to connect the dots for some of those people of. Hey, there is a return on the investment for all this culture stuff. If you want to look at turnover rates, if you want to look at attracting talent, you want to look at developing talent, you want to look at then the performance metrics that that leads to. All of those things have an uptick when people have this sense of belonging and a connection to a culture that they want to be a part of, that their performance actually raises. And so, uh, I think part of that evolution that we are going, we are experiencing, and I think we're going to experience even more, is more and more leaders that are enlightened to the fact that all of these things are absolutely connected to performance, and it isn't just profitability isn't the only thing. Now, hear me say this: like, of course, businesses, organizations need to be profitable, or else they won't exist. So, but it's not the only thing. And that's where I think the evolution of thinking is happening. I think that also when people talk about profitability, going back to language, it's almost like they are assuming it's binary. You're profitable or you're not. And one of the questions right. I often, and I work in a business school, so one of the questions I often ask my students is, what's the profit margin, right? How much profit do you need? And where does that profit then go? And it's, you know, pro, you know we can reap profit financially, but become enter into a deficit 
spiritually, if I can use that yeah. language. Yeah. You know, so profitability at the expense of spirituality leaves you with, I would say, a pretty large deficit in terms in terms of your life. I mean, I, one of the reasons why I study workplaces and I've always studied workplaces is that workplaces are the are the context in which we get socialized into our broader social relationships. It forms so much of who we are outside of work. That's right. And so what happens in the and this creates a moral obligation, I think, of leadership to be stewards of environments that will then spread out into other parts of our lives. Gary, I think I think that we, you and I talked about this on our on our very first uh, you know introduction to each other when somebody said we just needed to meet, just right. needed to know know each other, and and that uh, in fact in, in my newest book that's coming out this August called Breathing Oxygen, I talk about the need for all of us, like what is the oxygen that we are breathing into ourselves, the mindsets that we are fueling, and then how are we breathing oxygen into the people around us? And I, I make that very same case that we right now, uh, our places of work are the gr greatest, have the greatest opportunity to have impact for us socially because the, the places that we spend eight, 10, 12, hours, you know, however many hours of the day you right. spend, that these are the places that, that where we intersect with people that are different than we are, that, that, that we, we aren't just going back to our own little neighborhood or wherever we may may be that these are the places our places of work have the greatest opportunity to help us uh, grow develop learn how to uh, move throughout the world in new ways uh, but we're gonna have to breathe oxygen into that that um, you know rather than just colliding around with each other uh, again, I what we're realizing is that people want to be in environments that they feel like is breathing oxygen into them as a human, but also that that we as employers are realizing part of our role. Not not it's not just about profitability. Part of our existence in this world is to help breathe oxygen into people. One of the ways we do that is by paying them. Yes, but that's not the only way. And we've got to get better about breathing good oxygen into each other. And, and thinking about that, like multi, multilaterally too, right? Because it's, it's again, not just the organization going outside into me as a person, but then how do we do it as folks within an organization too, right? And, and that's right. Kind of, the lungs kind of work at my in 360. <laughs> um, yeah. 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 Breathing is something that we do, fortunately, like involuntarily. Like fortunately, right now, as we're talking here right now, we we all are fortunately we are, our body is breathing without us telling it to breathe, right? That's fortunately, That's a right? it's a plus. And in organizations that you see, those places that that people celebrate for ha and and you hear they win awards or or people talking about, man, they've got an amazing culture there, and it's just you know it's something like is in the air. It's just the way they breathe. Like, well, it it's because of so many intentional and strategic. And 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 development things that they have done for so many little ways over years that yes, it has become kind of the involuntarily way that they breathe. But breathing is also something that we do voluntarily. When we are stressed, when we are facing an obstacle, when we need a moment to just step back and take a deep breath and clear our minds, we know that the quality of air that we breathe in impacts the very next performance and breath that we have. I mean, ask, you know. 
ask an elite athlete that <laughs> how important the that deep breath is and they'll tell you right we also know that when we get pulled into breathing in toxic air of blame of negativity of gossip of finger pointing of that we that also becomes kind of corrosive and poisonous and toxic to ourselves and also to the people around us and so voluntarily we have an opportunity, just as you were saying, Adam, is, to, is to, to, to also, not only what is it that we're breathing individually, but how do we breathe that into our teammates? And from, a, and from an organization standpoint, very intentionally, how do we breathe oxygen into our people? And realizing think, that's part of our goal. I think COVID has made it very clear that people breathe in 360 degrees. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, no doubt. Stop breathing, especially as I was grocery shopping yesterday. I was just like, hey, "Could you, could you breathe less?" Because I'm feeling <laughs> very anxious right now, and yeah. and and being responsible. But you know, to use that metaphor, being conscious and responsible for what we are doing to those around us, and this became yeah. part of this going back to individualism, collectivism, and our responsibility to one another for the environment that we are creating collectively. That it's yes, it's your I guess it's your right to do X, Y, or Z, but you also have an obligation in a society in which we're living together to consider what your decisions, what impact your decisions have on others and how that might negatively impact them or positively impact them. I was looking at research that talked about, you know, the, the going back to language, the the way in which mask mandates were framed or mask recommendations were framed was this is something to protect you in other countries it was this is something to protect others mm. and how do we create this orientation to something fundamental as breathing to a social contract and the environment yeah. that we're creating for one another yeah so uh, that's a, it's a that that's a really wonderful example of language and and, and then the way that we uh, set up the language of then how that takes us in a particular viewpoint, right? Uh, Sanjay Gupta, you know the, the the physician that that is on the you know the Today Show and you know all all national and in global news networks. They during the pandemic they were talking to him and saying what one of the things he said that that I still remember is he said my health is dependent on your behavior and your health is dependent on my behavior. And as he said that, I started thinking, again, we were talking about a global pandemic at the time. So we're talking about literal health. Uh, but, but I started to think about it also as that, that really, that's a, that's a cultural statement. That is a, that, that as we start to adopt that kind of thinking within our teams and organizations, that, that my health, meaning not just my, my literal physical health, but my emotional health, my phys my physical, my spiritual health, my my performance at my work, it, my behavior is dependent also on you, and yours is on me. On me, that we are in this co-creation uh, together and a partnership to try to accomplish something together that we can't accomplish on our own. That's, I mean, that when you boil it down, what is an organization? You know, I'd say this very simply: it's like it all it is is a collection of humans. You know that have come together to try to accomplish something that they can on their own. If they could do it on their own, we wouldn't need to form these organizations and stuff. But no, we need other people with different skill sets and different, uh, you know, viewpoints and 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 more people to do different tasks and jobs. But we are all co-creating that experience in that culture and are dependent upon one another. 
And in, I think that that's the great point that, you know, also just hits on this, this idea that, you know, to think of our, our 360 metaphor too, that it, like an organization to function and, and to, you know, as, as a collective to do that, which we can't do by ourselves. Um, like how important that is also to, I think, help leadership remember that, right? Because oftentimes it's more like, well, this is the organization. These are our values. This is who we are. You should, you should love what you do, right? And, and that kind of top-down approach that just doesn't really fly as much today. Um, and I think for good reason, right? Because as people are asking deeper questions, like, why do I spend the majority of my waking hours with this group of people or this organization um, besides getting paid? Like we need to, we need to, you know, that's on one level. That's a, sense that's, of a, that's a, right? that's a yeah. baseline thing. Baseline. It's yeah, like, exactly. that's, and, and no longer is that enough. I mean, and, and again, the research shows us that. And even the people right now within the great resignation that are jumping to places that are trying to solve the problem by just throwing money at it mm. are also mm. realizing that's not in the end enough. That's not what people, uh, even, and even the person says, all I want is money. That's not true. It's, it's just, right. it's just, it's not true. Eventually that's not true. Yeah, I think that's 100% right. That, that's super important, I think, to help organizations recognize that too, right? That there is, on one level, like, it's it's weird because it's free to make culture. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it doesn't cost anything to, like, let's have a conversation and talk about what it is that we're looking to do together. Um, but interesting, like, that that is, you know, that we're at this interesting inflection point, or you, you kind of, you phrase it as as we're in this interesting moment of evolution between generations where uh, we we're, we are rethinking the mandate of what work is, right? And what business is, Um and it's it's interesting to kind of have it come full circle to remember that this is like the the idea of of an organization and, and company, right? And it makes me even think of actually speaking of language. The uh, I don't know if this is the, actually the case, but the you know the secondhand information that you know company the word company itself meant like come penny with like with bread with others, like in terms of like making mm. food and eating together and sharing together. Um, even this this idea of why we even use this word is really interesting. You know, and it may make sense of why we use the metaphor of bread too. Like I'm the breadwinner, right? Or like here, I'm gonna spend all my bread on this thing. And so, even this idea of that which feeds us is what we do together is important to, to kind of contemplate what it is that we want organizations to 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 do. You know, and so it's like that's also this mandate that has gotten me thinking in terms of how do we think back to those kind of roots, right? What why do we get together to do things that we can't do by ourselves? I mean, a we evolved to do that as as a species, um, but then it's interesting to, to think that then it's not just about propping up the leader or the top of an organization itself at the, at the expense of, I think, I think Gary's idea, the expense of our spiritual wellness, right. Mm-hmm. Or something else that like they're all connected. And so how do we help train organizations to continue to be, be more kind of holistic in their thinking? So I think the oxygen, the oxygen metaphor, I think is quite apt in that regard too. that, you know, a, if you don't have it, you did, um, <laughs> you know, and, but then on top of that, that um, I like the idea that it's both voluntary and involuntary. I think it's really interesting and compelling. Um, a case to make is it, it's that like you don't just do it. And it's the same with culture too. You don't just do it. it. You can be active. You can be passive. Like it's better to be active. Um, you know, mindfulness is about knowing that you're breathing, right? And so mindful culture is kind of like know that you're making culture. Yep. Um, anyway, so I don't know it's good. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Thanks, man. No, I appreciate it. And I, I, I I'm, uh, I'm a pretty, uh, I'm not, I'm not as bright as you guys. So I, I gotta, I gotta dumb it down and like be simple. Well, you're, yeah, from, you're from Columbus, so I mean, that's kind of yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thank you. Gosh, right. there's another one. Just I, so, I couldn't help it. I, no, yeah, hey, I wanted I, to, and I stopped myself, but then I just couldn't stop myself. My self-deprecation <laughs> just put the ball right on the tee just so you right. could, could knock it. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I often just put it 
and again, I think this is just um, one of the reasons why, why don't we do that stuff that you're just describing, Adam, is like, mm. well, it's because we're creatures of habit. And so we get in the habit, like, and again, this spans generations. So we get in the habit of doing one, one, something one way or one particular way, or we have systems or approaches or, you know, things that we do within organizations. And v- very rarely does somebody say, wait, why don't we do it that way? Or like, what, what? You know, why do we always have the Tuesday morning meeting and what's the point of the Tuesday morning meeting or whatever that is? And, and, and eventually we realize that, no, we all share in the creation of this culture. And so we need to ask those challenges and adapt that kind of thinking. And so I often then bring it back to just simple examples. Like if me and my wife, Amy, and our family, like if all we did and it was only about performance, and and the and and our family was only about our kids getting up, going to school, getting A's, and like going to their sports, and just and 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 all it mattered was the outcome of their performance. Then that will create a particular culture. We know that, right? And mm-hmm. when we boil it down very simply, like we're like, oh yeah, of course. Like I can already see what type of parent I would be, what type of experience my kid would have what type of family we would have. And so, you know, we take family vacations or we take our kids to lunch or we spend time talking about values and things that are different than just performance because we want them to grow and the culture of our family and them as a kid to be shaped by something beyond just performance. And when we talk about it that way, we're like, oh yeah, of course, like, yeah, that's what we want. And yet, well, why would our team or organization be any different than that? We want to make sure that, yes, performance is a key indicator and important element, but let's make sure that we're developing everything around that helps that performance enhance and the type of performance and culture we really want to have. Let's make sure we're honoring that. Plato said, what is honored will be cultivated. What is honored will be cultivated. So if what we honor is just performance schedules, getting like getting from point A to point B, then that's the what we will cultivate. If we want something different, then we're going to have to be much more intentional and proactive about honoring something different. That's the invitation. I think that that's an awesome place to end it. Yeah, I, I think I, I think that that's a uh, really well said and and. And we have our Plato reference for today. Yeah. So that was awesome. There you go. Yeah. That was we, awesome. He hit the quota. Yeah, we did. We have, we have, we have a quota of uh, mentioning one dead philosopher per episode. And I think that was it. So thanks so much, Jason, for, for taking the time to chat with us. So great to be with you guys. Appreciate it. Great conversation. And thanks for all the work you guys are doing. Great, uh, great stuff you're, you're helping people think about and, uh, and learn and develop. So thank you. We want to thank Jason Barger once again, keynote speaker and author of Breathing Oxygen, How Positive Leadership Gives Life to Living Cultures, for talking with us about his new book, his life's work, and all things Buckeye. You can learn more about Jason's speaking and writing at jasonvbarger.com. And as always, we'd love to get in conversation with you. What are some of the small behaviors that you've seen in your life or others that have had big impacts? And what have you noticed at airports, aside from luggage? And what strategies for breathing oxygen into your workplace culture have you seen or would you like to see implemented? And also, 
What other positive stories can you tell us about the world of Ohio? I've got a few. None. I want to hear from y'all first. <laughs> uh, no positive stories. So, you know. So as always, shoot us a message over at feedbackexperiencexdesign.com or get in the conversation on our LinkedIn page. We cannot wait to hear from you. And big news, by the time you hear this, we will have over 8,000 downloads. As we record this today, we just hit the 8,000 download mark, which feels like a landmark, even though it's just an arbitrary number, but still, we could not have done it without all of you listening to the podcast. So we just want to thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts for making Experience by Design part of your podcast, listening repertoire and routine. And thank you for continuing to support the podcast with your ideas, with your financial support, and your other contributions, your words of encouragement. Everything is welcome. And if you want to continue to support the podcast financially or start, you can always head over to experiencexdesign.com and buy us a coffee to provide that financial sponsorship. And if you ever want to sponsor an episode, by all means, reach out to us at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. Let us know how we can work with you. We're always eager to do so. So with that, thanks again for allowing us to be part of your lives and hit 8,000 downloads. And make sure to be safe, be kind, be well, and be here for the next Experience by Design.